Hi, welcome back to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm your host, Carol, and today we are going to be looking at the Economy Southeast Asia 2020 report with Stephanie Davis, Vice President at Google Southeast Asia. So first of all, welcome to the Analyze Asia podcast, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Carol. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, with every new guest, I like to ask a few questions about their career to learn more about the path that they have taken. So Stephanie, let us learn more about you. First question, what is your current role and what are some of your responsibilities at Google? So my current role is looking after our business and strategy across Southeast Asia and some of our emerging markets in Southeast Asia as well. So that would be Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. And when I say our, I guess I should have made sure I was clear with Google. Gotcha. Well, it sounds like you have a lot on your plate. How did you start your career end up where you are? I believe you're in Singapore as well, right? That's right. I am based in Singapore. And my road here, I often feel that it has been a long and winding road, but I have actually come to really appreciate those wine or curves in the road, if you will, because it's all come together quite nicely. But I began my career as an analyst, actually in the medical field, in the socio-demographic side of things. And after I decided that I wasn't actually going to go to medical school as I had planned, I got back into the business world and went into media. And I continued again on the analyst route, really came to respect the role of journalism in the world. But our company in the US, it was the second largest newspaper company, Knight Ritter, sold and thought that perhaps it was time that I figure out what all of this uh, buzz around technology is. That's when I joined Google. And I cannot believe that it has been almost 14 years. I was in California when I joined Google. But one of the things that I think just been wonderful and has kept me at Google for 14 years is that I feel like I've had multiple careers, but at one company. And that's come through working at different divisions and in different geographies. So I first came over to our Asia Pacific region about five years ago when I was the country director of New Zealand. Then the country director for Singapore opened up. And that's how I first came to be in Singapore. Fell in love with Southeast Asia, such an incredibly dynamic and diverse region. Yeah, really thankful to be looking after the region now, working with so many amazing Wow, what an interesting career. And uh, you probably heard my introduction for Analyze Asia. You know, we cover business, technology and media, all of which that you have really worked in, which is really cool. I know a lot of our listeners must be curious. What are some of the key learnings from your career journey that you'd like to share? Well, I would maybe stick to just a couple here. I learned so much. I've failed, I've stumbled and I uh, through it all, uh, have learned. And I think that's that would be my highlight, that my key learning is to learn. And ensuring that I am never complacent or comfortable, or overly comfortable, I should say. I've described it to others as chasing butterflies, finding what it is that's going to stretch me and how I can continue to grow. But also, of course, hopefully making a solid contribution myself along the way. But, you know, coming back to what you said, you know, media, uh, tech space, and my bridge was being an analyst. But there is that natural bridge between industries, between roles, and uh, just learning, keeping it interesting. 
that's my number one takeaway. That's some solid advice. And now let us dive into the Economy Southeast Asia report. My understanding is that this is the fifth edition of this report published by Google, Tomasek, and Bain. So first of all, can you provide a little bit background context of how this uh, got started five years ago? Yes. So five years ago, there really were not any estimates available on the digital economy in Southeast Asia. Many of us were operating without that information, without a size of the digital economy, what factors were influencing its growth. So it was really a collaborative, scrappy, if you will, initiative that came together between, at the time, Google and Temasek, and Bain, with their expertise, joined us a few years later. But yes, it's been an interesting journey. We've learned a lot uh, along the way, but it uh, continues to be every year a highlight for us and, and still informs uh, what we do and others around the region as well. I know that it covers the six countries of Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. So who are the intended audience of the 2020 report? And what would you say are you know the key themes of the report this year? Yes. So if I may also come back to when you just named the six countries, that is correct. Another thing that we have looked at when we put this data together or put the report together is where is data readily available? And today, these are the six countries whereby we do have access to formative and credible data. But in the future, we certainly hope to expand this out to include more Southeast Asian countries beyond these six. Uh, but the core audience is really quite a few different targets, if you will or relevant audience members. The first would be established businesses in the market. Uh, some may refer to these as traditional or incumbent established businesses or providers. And the reason they're such an important audience is so that they can keep a gauge on where digital sits in Southeast Asia because many of these industries are in the process of transforming or need to transform. A second audience is digital native and investors. So digital natives, you know, born pure play online, but it's still, I think, uh, quite informative to them to see like what some of the consumer behavior is online across the region. For investors, it's really insightful to see where investment is happening, where returns uh, are being seen, uh, all under the guise that we believe that an inclusive and open ecosystem is really core for a healthy digital economy. And then lastly, uh, an important audience is our public policy makers. And there are a few things that really shine through that's important uh, for policymakers. The first is digital talent or tech talent. In our first year of writing the report, we identified six areas that were potential obstacles that would keep the digital economy from reaching its full uh, potential in Southeast Asia. And talent was one of those, and it hasn't progressed as much as we would like for it to um, over the past several years. And so private sector and public sector coming together to work on skilling programs, upskilling and reskilling programs is going to be really valuable, especially during this economic recovery period that we're all hoping for and working toward, but also to help the digital economy achieve its uh, full potential. Another sector or subsector that we identified as, as potential obstacle is, is logistics. And we have seen a great progress in logistics over the past few years, 
But in some countries, we still hear from users who say that issues with delivery remains a barrier for them engaging with the digital economy. So these are two areas that policymakers can lean into, and the report is hopefully valuable to them in that regard. But while I'm here, Carol, if I may just, just touch on four of the other obstacles that we called out a few years ago and highlight the fact that we're actually calling them momentum drivers today because we've seen significant progress in these areas over the last few years, and that's internet access, consumer trust, payment, and funding. So with that, I believe you said you'd like to hear some of the highlights of the report. That's right. So on that note, what do we see in 2020? The first is we see an unprecedented move towards digital services. Digital is now at center stage. And the first way that we see this is the number of those who came online in 2020 alone. It's 40 million. If we look at that, in, especially when you look at that in comparison to the last five years, between 2015 and 2019, 100 million came online for the first time in Southeast Asia. And in the last year, between 2018 and 2019, it was uh, just 10 million. So that had begun to slow, as was expected. But there was a real acceleration this year. So yes, unprecedented move towards digital services. The second piece that stands out in this year is a COVID is adoption and what we're describing as digital consumerism. So it's not just coming online and browsing and or communicating. It's coming online and actually consuming. And that is purchasing goods and services and or subscribing to goods or services. So we see real meaningful traction in 2020, and that's really been driven by COVID. We see that in about any category online, so let's say purchasing electronics is just one example. Buying groceries is another example. In any of those categories, we see on average that about 36% of their digital consumer base is new. And so that's a really big influx of digital consumerism in a single year. And so that leads us to what we do each year, and that's sizing the digital economy. So in year of COVID, when we have all just had profound impact, you know, I know both personally as, as well as to businesses and economies globally, we are actually not revising down our digital economy estimates for Southeast Asia. In fact, we're holding it pretty steady from last year. We see modest growth. Uh, we're sizing it at about $105 billion this year. And we've been doing for quite a few years an outlook to 2025. And we're also putting some modest growth on that as well compared to the forecast we made last year. And uh, we're calling for about $310 billion in uh, GMV by 2025. So again, with this backdrop of, of a global pandemic, we really see resilience in Southeast Asia's digital economy. And we are encouraged by that and and heartened by it. So just a couple more things to, to share with you as, as it relates to highlights. The competition remains healthy, particularly when we look at the opportunity that is ahead. You know, I shared a few moments ago that 40 million came online. That has us at 400 million in Southeast Asia now. That's 70% digital penetration across the region. But when you look at other countries and see the headroom to go to 90% connectivity, we still see a lot of opportunity. So it remains quite healthy. And then last, investments, again, uh, despite the backdrop that we've all been in this year, remain quite stable. We actually see a higher volume of investments year on year. 
we do see a slight reduction in the first half of 2020 compared to the first half of 2019. But that's primarily because we see less investment going into the unicorns. You know, they used the money that had been raised for them previously to build their companies. So now you see attention turning to other businesses or startups outside of the unicorn space. And a couple of examples that we highlighted in this year's report is health tech and education tech as, as well. As you can imagine, COVID has had a lot of influence on these categories. Health tech as an example is being used four times more than it was in Southeast Asia, Asia pre-COVID and uh, education tech uh, three times more. So those are some just few of the things that that stood out for us and has uh, offered us good reason uh, to be optimistic about the digital economy uh, this year, as well as the uh, five years ahead of us. Of course. And you honestly answered quite a few of my questions before I even got the chance to ask, Stephanie. How did you know? No worries at all. But let me ask a few more specific questions, though. For example, given that most of the world is still caught in a lockdown, you might be working from home as well. What is both the quantity and quality for the digital engagement of users in the Southeast Asia region? And you're right. I am still working at home. I have, like so many others, I've been doing so for months now. Our office in Singapore has reopened on a rotational basis. So just a small percentage is in the office on a daily basis. But uh, yes, I am still at home. I have been doing a lot of what others across Southeast Asia uh, has been doing, and that is spending more time online. So that comes to your question on quantity. The thing that stands out in Southeast Asia is where that time online uh, happens. And it is much more likely to be on a mobile device in Southeast Asia compared uh, to other countries. In fact, 90% of time spent in Southeast Asia in a personal capacity is on a mobile device. So before COVID, we saw about 3.7 hours per day on a mobile device. And during COVID, as, as you can imagine, that increased. But we saw an increase of about an hour to 4.7 hours a day online. And now that we have come out of circuit breaker, we certainly haven't emerged from from COVID by any means, but we have come out of lockdown in many of our countries across Southeast Asia. And we see that time spent is slightly less than it was during. So we see about 4.2 hours, but that is still significantly more than pre-COVID. So we see quantity of time online to your question has increased. And the second part on quality. When we ask individuals about the time that they spent online, eight out of 10 tell us that it was helpful to them during the pandemic. And nine out of 10 tell us that they plan to continue to consume digitally, particularly the new digital consumers. We also know at Google that you know, it's an example. People on YouTube are looking to learn. They're looking for content that they describe as being helpful to them. So yeah, I'm sure that many, myself included, have used lots of time to be entertained. Gaming is certainly happening. That has grown year over year, as has video streaming. But the overarching sentiment that Southeast Asians walk away with is that this time online has been helpful to them during COVID and that they have adopted new behaviors that they plan to continue. Of course. And you talked about how, you know, there was an addition of 40 million people that came online, right? Where is this new growth coming from, really? Yes. So we 
did not break that down this year by country. I do know overall the connectivity uh, rates across Southeast Asia, but we just don't know the, the influx, which was new. So again, about 70% of population is now connected in Southeast Asia. We see a high, to no surprise, in Singapore of 87% and a low Indonesia, and that's at 60%. Now, when we look at the distribution of the internet population, even though connectivity is the lowest in Indonesia, 60% really compares to where the region was last year at 63%. Indonesia makes up the highest, of course, in population, but also of the internet population. But when we look that it has the lowest connectivity rate, we still see a lot of opportunity in Indonesia. When we ask the question, I know you're asking specifically about connectivity, but when we ask the question about digital consumerism, particularly if they consumed for the first time during COVID, that is quite evenly dispersed around the region. Even in Singapore, which has the highest connectivity rate, 30% are consuming online for the first time. And the average across the region is 36. So if we think about that pretty evenly distributed first time digital consumerism that is happening, uh, we're led to believe that the percentage coming online is not terribly distributed on an uneven basis. And what would you say are, you know, the three key verticals that you'd name that have benefited significantly from the pandemic? Yeah, the first that is just a real standout is e-commerce. 2020 was the year of e-commerce. In 2019, we sized e-commerce at about 38 billion GMB. This year, 62 billion. So a growth of 63%. We have actually increased our forecast for 2025. Uh, Last year, we were modeling around 150 billion with this increased growth rate, but also importantly, the stickiness that we're seeing in the category, meaning the increased frequency of purchases that are happening, the fact that people are now buying essential goods. So items that they need on a daily basis through e-commerce. And also when we learn, again, from those who have engaged in e-commerce, they share with us that they plan to continue. And uh, a reason for that is that many may have purchased e-com through an e-commerce platform the first time during COVID so that they reduced their potential exposure in a physical store to coronavirus. But they tell us now that they have found it to be efficient and effective. So we think that there's new momentum in e-com. So that is clearly the standout category uh, for us this year in 2020. Smaller in terms of size uh, is gaming. Uh, Gaming is about 4.2 billion in terms of GMV in Southeast Asia, but it grew at 34% year on year in 2020. Again, even smaller is video streaming. 700 million, but it had the highest growth year on year at 114%. So very different businesses. You have one high base and still growing strongly. Uh, Gaming, a medium base at at 4 billion and strong growth. And just a very different business model, of course, with a streaming video, but very high growth. And I know you asked for three categories, but but if I may, I, I would love to touch on food delivery. Food delivery sits in our transport sector. We have ride hailing and food delivery there. And ride hailing, we know, just just like uh, travel was was 
negatively and immensely so impacted during COVID. So we saw the ride hailing portion decline by 38% year on year. Food delivery increased by 20%. So it wasn't enough to offset the decline in ride hailing, uh, but it is a category that, you know, at about 2 billion, it's just smaller than gaming, but it's one that we think that has also received some stickiness, if you will, during COVID. Let me go back to the, uh, your comment on e-commerce. It sounds like you're very positive about the entire e-commerce industry, but do you see any kind of, you know, headwind in the coming year? Or do you think it's all going to be smooth sailing into 2021 as well? Look, I'm very bullish on e-commerce. I think that, again, if we think about that it was already growing at oppressive clips pre-COVID, what we've seen is increased adoption and adoption that by, by most indicators, even from many of the e-commerce companies themselves, uh, share that they don't see churn to the degree that they would have otherwise expected when markets have emerged uh, from lockdown. So, yeah, quite bullish. But uh, are there uh, headwinds? Sure. I think in all of these categories, a couple that come to mind first is, is payments. You know, payments has gotten a lot of traction this year also uh, during COVID in Southeast Asia. Uh, but at the same time, in order to be, have more inclusivity when it comes to buying via online, I think that we're just going to need more payment options uh, across the board. So, yeah, there's a lot in development now, but a lot hasn't yet rolled out. So the pace of that uh, will also inform just how much e-commerce grows uh, in the coming quarters and years. A second one uh, is logistics. Now, I touched on, on that in the beginning. It was one where we've seen a good bit of progress, but we haven't yet classified it as significant progress. We've seen a lot of uh, progress, particularly in the urban centers uh, around Southeast Asia. But outside of the metros uh, in rural areas, we still have individuals telling us that a primary blocker for them to engage as a digital consumer, uh, particularly in e-commerce, is their concern around delivery. So delivery issue continues to be a blocker for growth, uh, particularly in markets like Vietnam uh, and Thailand. So I think that will also be an area in addition to payments that will need to continue to see progress in order for e-com to, to achieve its full potential. And you touched on the travel industry. And as we all know, that this is one of those sectors that, you know, is gravely affected by COVID-19 this year. Do you see any signs of recovery? If yes, where? Yes, I do. Um, but first, to acknowledge, you know, the, the painful year that the travel industry has had. I've worked in the travel industry. I personally love to travel. And uh, you also see those who have been impacted in terms of, of jobs and in business performance. And it, it really is unfortunate. And yeah, it's, it's sad to see. We see in Southeast Asia a decline of 58% year on year uh, as it relates to uh, online travel specifically. Uh, last year, we had sized at about 34 billion. This year, it's at 14 billion. So yeah, it's been a tough year. 
But we do, uh, to your point, see some silver linings on the horizon. I don't think any of us know exactly when things will turn, how rapidly things will turn around. Uh, but, you know, last year we had sized the online travel market to be about $78 billion by 2025. We're not yet convinced that we'll be able to, to meet that marker. So we've downsized that. It's the only category that we have downsized year on year in terms of a, a 2025 outlook. But we do believe that it will grow between now and 2025. We're looking at about a 33% CAGR compound growth rate between now and then. And so what are some of the things that we see? The first is domestic tourism. That's possible in some of our markets or more possible, I should say, in Southeast Asia than other markets, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam. We really see the impact less in those markets that have domestic tourism. In a market like Singapore, where we don't have as much of an opportunity for domestic tourism, we see Singapore being hit the hardest when it comes to online travel. But domestic tourism, being able to travel within a few hours drive has also been something that we've seen in terms of positivity in the near term. And also when we ask Southeast Asians about their eagerness to return to traveling, overwhelmingly, they say yes. You know, right now the circumstances don't allow, but what we see is pent-up demand. And we're just confident that as soon as the ability is there, we're going to see a rush uh, for people wanting to travel again. It, it is interesting, though, to see some of the things that at least at this time have changed what they're looking for when they're traveling. So they're researching places that have cleanliness, hygiene, protecting uh, against COVID with a vaccine that may change. But again, before it would have been quite different, of course. You know, price, which is still a, a sensitive piece, would have been at the top of the list. But safety is what's on people's mind. But again, pent up demand. And we think the growth will be there as soon as it's allowed. Definitely. I can't wait for the day that Indonesia opens its border and I could go to Bali safely again to, you know, just bask in the sun and surf, etc. You touched on gaming and highlighted it as an industry. What about, say, entertainment? I know that, you know, offline entertainment definitely took a hit, but online entertainment probably thrived as well, right? Due to COVID? Uh, so yes, we do look at online media as a part of the report. And in that we have have a streaming video as well as streaming music. I mentioned streaming video before. Now, in order to be included in this, we're capturing GMV or gross merchandise value. So they need to be subscribing to, to streaming video before this is counted. As I mentioned, 700 million, we estimate as the GMV size this year, growing at 114%. Music, about 400 million and growing at 48% year on year. So I think that from a GMV perspective that certainly proves what you're stating about entertainment. But from non-paid platforms, we see what you're describing as well. So at Google and, and YouTube, we saw an increase in watch time across the region during COVID and during, well, we're still in COVID, but during lockdown. And that watch time is sticking, it's staying. So we see high engagement with videos on, on YouTube. So yes, uh, entertainment is certainly one of the factors that we have seen to be impacted in a positive capacity during COVID. What about fintech? I know you mentioned, for example, payments as I believe you said it was also an obstacle, right, to growth of e-commerce. What about fintech overall? Yes. 
Fintech is another sector that we believe has been positively influenced, but particularly as it relates to adoption. A few things that stood out for us in Fintech. The first is that we see a decline in the utilization of cash, and I'm referring to a volume of transactions. So we went from about 45% volume last year to 37% this year. And at the same time, we saw an increased uptake in e-wallets. So from 18% last year to 25% this year. So we see that attraction from a consumer side, but we also see fintech receiving increased traction in 2020 on several platforms. Remittance payments has increased in terms of adoption uh, significantly in 2020, as has investment, digital investments, and insurance that is bought and sold digitally as well. We also see the gross uh, transaction value increasing year on year, so from about 600 million last year to 620. So from an adoption uh, perspective, we have seen a lot of traction. And this sends us a positive signal because previously, FinTech was one of those categories that certainly needed consumer trust before engaging. And this adoption shows us that that potential barrier is beginning to crumble, that there is trust in finance via online platforms. I was going to ask, what are the two verticals that have emerged this year? I believe it's the two sectors that you mentioned earlier, which are also the two new sectors added to the report this year, which are ed, education tech and health tech, right? Do you want to highlight their growth a little bit more? Yes, thank you for that. You know, when we first started doing the economy report based on 2015, published it in 2016, we started with sectors that were more substantial in size. And over time, we have included emerging sectors. So as an example, in 2018, I believe it was, we added ride hailing. And then 2019, we added food delivery to ride hailing for the transport sector. And last year, we covered FinTech for the first time. And this year, there were two clear emerging sectors that we thought should be included. And yes, they are health tech and education tech or ed tech. So to refer first to healthcare. Now, we have had a chronic challenge as it relates to healthcare around the Southeast Asia region. And I say that based on on two data points. The first is we look at doctors per 100,000 population and hospital beds per 100,000 population. We are below the developed market average. And we're also quite a bit below China as well. So we have this need for telemedicine or if not for more doctors and hospital beds. And what we saw happen during COVID is I come back to that trust piece that I just talked about in digital payment. We saw that trust barrier began to erode during COVID. First, because maybe some folks didn't have a choice. But once they experienced telemedicine, both the provider as well as the patient in this case or the user saw that it was actually quite effective and it was rather efficient as well. So some of the concerns that individuals had had around safety and and quality as well eroded. So we see attraction there coming from the user standpoint. As a result, we see that health tech 
grew by about 4x in the region. So if we take a look to see how this is translated into usage, we see an adoption that is about 4x the adoption rate as pre-COVID. So January being our baseline pre-COVID, we saw a height during March at, at four and a half times utilization of health tech, and it is still well over pre-COVID levels. So again, we're seeing a pattern of, of some stickiness in some of these categories. The second that you mentioned is ed tech. As we all know that during lockdowns, we had uh, many of our students who were learning from home and teachers who were teaching from home. And that certainly drove a record growth in terms of, of adoption of ed tech tools as well. In fact, we saw a 3x. Now, this is quite a large base. There were about 6 million people on an ed tech platform pre-COVID, but during COVID, we saw that increase to around 20 million. Now, we're just looking at app when I share these numbers. When you look at Google Classroom and a lot of other offerings around the region, that number of courses is, is quite a bit larger. Uh, but if we look at investments in these two categories, both on health tech as well as in, in ed tech, we see that growing as well. So health tech has the bigger investment in 2019. It was around 500 million in the space. We're looking at the first half of 2020. It's actually edging out as above the first half of 2019. So the traction is, is certainly there. We also see more investments happening in the space year on year between the first half of 2019 and 2020. And on ed tech, it's a, a bit less in terms of little investment, but we see that it has accelerated a bit on the back end of 2019. So we're looking at, at more than 250 million in 2019 and uh, still on pace there. So whereas we saw a pullback in investments in some areas such as the unicorns, we're seeing an acceleration in these two areas. Talking about unicorns, well, both Google and Tomasek are investors of many startups, including a few unicorns, you know, from China all the way to Silicon Valley covering the entire world. How do you see the startup space evolving with regards to deal activity, diversification of portfolio by investors from private equity to uh, venture capital? Yeah. So the last few years in Southeast Asia, investment overwhelmingly went to the unicorn. They dominated, actually, the investments that were coming in. That began to change in 2019. Now, they're still receiving investment. It was last year, about $3 billion. But a couple of things changed first. So with that overwhelming majority of the VC funds coming in to the region, the unicorns used that cash to build their businesses. So let's look at Citigroup. It's the, the publicly traded company that we have to refer to. It's grown tremendously. It passed $100 billion market cap just this past week. They have $3 billion in cash on hand, I should say. So don't necessarily need the investments that they previously needed to build their businesses. So because of that, and also because maybe of a, of a shifting mindset of investors, we see a diversification of funds uh, coming in, into Southeast Asia. So that shifting mindset that I'm referring to is a bit more focused on profitability versus how fast can we grow maybe GMV or users, but what will be the returns? It's a mindset of the investor in 2020 that is a bit different. They're cautious, but they're still optimistic. We still think that there is sizable, what's being referred to as dry powder, which you probably know more about than I do, but the available funds or funds that VCs are willing to invest, but they're waiting for that right opportunity. So that comes back to the cautious optimism. 
we don't see the funds drying up. They haven't evaporated. They're not going away. It's just a shifting mindset in terms of investment across Southeast Asia. And because we are already in November, so if we were to, you know, look at the entire year and look at the economy in general, because we've touched on so many sectors already, in which countries within the region have shown growth while others have slowed down? If we put the digital economy to the side for just a moment, yes, the economies across Southeast Asia have been impacted. GDP has declined for all of the countries in Southeast Asia, with the exception of Vietnam. And some of these impacts have been significant, even in a market like or a country like Singapore. Now, Vietnam has seen less impact. Well, it has been impacted. It, you know, it's growing its GDP at, at just over 3%. I think it's one of the few countries globally, along with China, that is, is reporting some positive GDP, but it has slowed down. So it has been impacted, but just to a lesser degree. So different reasons, right? First is severity of COVID lockdowns, how long they were in place, how effective uh, they were. And Vietnam is a country that was able to manage COVID quite effectively. So they went into a lockdown earlier, but they came out much earlier and they've managed the virus quite well since. But you also look at, at a market like Singapore, they've managed COVID well, but you look up at the makeup or you look at the makeup of the economies, whereas you know, construction, airlines or transport is a big part of the economy you see there being even more impact versus a, a, another country. But again, we're positive from a digital economy perspective. The foundations were there. The infrastructure was there. The digital economies were growing beforehand. We saw a varying degree of effects, just like we have in GDP across the region. The, the countries that fared the best in terms of the digital economy year on year were Vietnam and Indonesia. Now, Indonesia's GDP was in decline. Its digital economy grew by 11%. Uh, you look at Vietnam, its GDP is growing about by 3%, digital economy by, by 16 So there is some correlation there, but, but not entirely. If we look at the digital economies that have been negatively impacted, we have only one country that is in negative territory, and that is Singapore. It doesn't fully align with its GDP decline. It is mostly correlated with what made up the digital economy in Singapore. Last year, we estimated the digital economy to be around 12 billion, but 50% of that was online travel. So Singapore had the highest proportion of online travel as its digital economy versus any other Southeast Asia country. And it also saw the steepest decline in online travel. So the sector online travel overall declined at about 58%. It declined by 70 in Singapore. So that led to a negative impact in Singapore. But want to call out that Singapore remains the gateway to the region. We still have more investment that's in a positive place, as I, as I mentioned earlier. It's got a, some strong fundamentals. Uh, more investment flows through Singapore than, than any other country. So things are, are in a good spot, including the fact that you know, we were talking about e-com earlier. A lot of uh, these, these companies, they operate across the entire region, but their headquarters uh, are in Singapore. 
Uh, so overall, Singapore will continue to be a big driver for the entire region as it relates to the digital co- economy. It's just that its domestic digital economy was impacted heavily because of online travel. But we do expect that, of course, to grow over the next five years. Of course. And like I said, we are in November. So this year, fortunately, is almost over. So what is the outlook for businesses in the year ahead? Should we be optimistic? given that the pandemic has both accelerated digital transformation, but also shut down many businesses at the same time. Yeah, so the the word that uh, comes to my mind when you ask the question is, is uncertainty. It is the end of the year. I personally thought we would have a lot more answers or perhaps clarity than we have today. But, you know, we all woke up to some good news this morning that there is a vaccine that is by Pfizer that is supposedly reporting 90% effectiveness. So we do see hope and end in sight, but it is still uncertain as to when that will happen. To the second part of your question, do we have optimism because of the digital economy when at the same time, we're torn by the fact that so many businesses are very unfortunately in decline. And that is something that weighs, I know, heavily on all of us. I know that it certainly does me. We desire and will be working hard toward economic recovery. But I choose to hang on to the optimism that the digital economy offers because it shows us that there are possibilities, that we can revive the economy, that we can be prepared. I hope we don't need to be prepared for another pandemic, but we've learned a lot. And so we can use digital and we know that users and businesses alike tell us that digital is helpful. We know that SMEs and merchants across the region have turned to digital at an increase, massively increased rate over 2020 in order to meet the demand from users. So we see this acceleration happening. And quite frankly, it's something that we thought would take four or five years, but it's happened in 10 months. So overall, I'm optimistic because I see possibility. I do think that the digital economy offers us just one of the roads to an economic recovery. There is demand and it's calling for a demand in uh, talent as well. So it gives us an opportunity, particularly between private sector and the public sector, to come together for a common good and provide skilling and reskilling for those who can find jobs in the digital economy. So that's where I'm going to hang my hat, uh, if I may, is, is on the optimism that the digital economy brings us, but certainly not losing sight of what others have had to go through this year and continue to go through. Definitely. I'm also optimistic as well. And like you said, we don't have all the answers still. But thanks to you, thanks to all, thanks to all your colleagues at Google, you know, when we read reports like the Economy Southeast Asia 2020 report, we are able to draw more clarity and insight from all the numbers and all the work that you have done. Yes, I'd like to thank you all for, for the work that you have put in. And Stephanie, also thank you for coming on to the show. But before I let you go, I have two last questions. First of all, do you have any recommendations like a book, a podcast, or even a YouTube video that you'd want to recommend to our audience? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. This is on my mind because we just spent the last few weeks as a leadership team in Asia Pacific focused on and and discussing how we can be an even more inclusive company. 
And diversity and inclusion is something that is, is important in, yes, the ecosystem and the internet, but for us at our companies as well. And so we spend a lot of time as a leadership team sharing podcasts and books as it relates to diversity and inclusion. Uh, so it's how I spent a number of my hikes and my bike rides as of late. And uh, we came together and really had fruitful, robust discussions about how we could be even more inclusive. And I find that super, super inspiring. It's a place I want to be better. And then I, I want us as a company to be even better. And so to share just a couple that I listen to as it relates in the space of, of DEI is a mental health disability and the Invisible 9%. That is a podcast. There is a Harvard Business Review podcast, How Authority and Decision Making Differs Across Cultures. Someone like myself who's looking after a few different teams in different locations found this really insightful. And then a podcast on transgender inclusion. So learned an awful lot and got a couple of books, um, but the one that was most recommended, and it's on my nightstand and I've just started it, so I can't personally yet stand behind it, but How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm. Uh, so far, it looks to be a really powerful read, um, and I look forward to finishing it. But a lot of those in my discussion group uh, said it was the most or more powerful reads that was on our reading list. Thank you so much. These are wonderful recommendations. And yes, because of the pandemic, we have seen, you know, a lot more hate and racism, even online, right? So it's very important that we are more mindful of how to be more inclusive and accept diversity, etc. And my last question is, how do my audience find you if they want to connect more with you after listening to this podcast? Thanks for asking. I haven't been too good on like my personal social platforms in the past few months, but I do try and keep LinkedIn up to date. It's where I share a lot of what we're seeing across the region, including today's uh, report. So yeah, if you find me on LinkedIn, I uh, share a good bit there and uh, also happy to continue the dialogue there as well. Exactly. Um, so if you find our conversation um, on the economy, Southeast Asia 2020 report interesting, feel free to connect with Stephanie and also read up the report because there are a lot of good uh, insight being offered there. So again, thank you so much, Stephanie, for coming on to the show and thank you to your team for arranging everything. Um, I would love to have you back again sometime, but thank you. Carol, thank you. It was, it was a real pleasure. I appreciate the conversation.